Before we begin, please refer to the disclaimers in the link on the podcast notes and note that none of the information provided during this update constitutes investment advice or a recommendation, solicitation, or offer by Galaxy Digital or its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firmware research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined today by Christine Kim, Saul Kadir from the Galaxy Digital Research team. We're joined by Tim Grant, the head of Europe, uh, Middle East, and Africa for Galaxy Digital, um, who's going to talk to us about what's going on in Europe and the region. And of course, we're joined by my friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. Um, let's kick it off with Bim as usual and give us an update on the markets. Jay Powell just testified before the U.S. Senate on his uh, biannual cadence. Um, it sounded like he said the headline, I think, was soft landing might not work that well in a recession is possible. Um, Absolutely. Was that the first yeah. admission that he's actually said that? Uh, no, but I would say it is the most sort of forceful assertion that a recession is possible that, that he's made to date. Um, and you know, to the point that I made last week, I think it's counterfactual to their forecast that they actually published um, last week. However, um, you know, I think what's notable is that the the market is, is going to quickly change from focusing on inflation to recession. Uh, one, um, you know, just taking a step back, this is a congressional testimony in Congress, right? You've got the midterm elections in, in early November um, and, and voters, you know, are currently most focused on inflation but two months from now i think that's you're going to see that change to folks focusing on inflation and so what you've had sorry folks focusing on 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 recession and so um you know what you've seen happen in the market is that you know you've seen back-end fixed income or sort of expectations for where terminal interest rate policy is going to be uh, move a lot lower um, and I think high level, that's generally good for, for risk assets um, because, you know, again, if the Fed goes from, you know, hiking to, to easing, that that's typically good for, for risk assets and, and things like crypto. So we're playing a, a you know, a close eye on, on sort of what back end uh, terminal rate expectations are, are doing um, in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, and we have Tim Grant here. <laughs> we can touch base on that uh, a little bit later. Uh, but I think that the key takeaway is, you know, Powell was the most forceful he's been about acknowledging recession probabilities. Um, you've seen fixed income markets react accordingly because the Fed, in response to a recession, is likely to to tighten monetary policy less, in fact, potentially ease. Um, and potential easing is, is generally good for, for risk markets. And, you know, you've seen NASDAQ, you know, rebound pretty, pretty aggressively off of, you know, last week's flows. Yeah, I mean, lows. It, it's this is the whipsaw policy, right? Because yep. they're going to hike into... A recession a lot of people think and um and then the recession is going to necessitate necessitate easing so then they're going to pull back at least on the hikes i think they're probably hoping they don't actually have to necessarily cut dramatically i mean we were Correct. on zero right so yeah. like they're trying to get us back into an equilibrium but i just can't i mean the, the amount i mean it's wall-to-wall coverage of jay powell the amount of importance that the central bank has now in our economy is just totally out of control it is a, a little out of control but I, I think it's it what what you're really sort of highlighting is just how complex the issue is at the moment right you've got such 
insane similarities to, to, to sort of other historical, you know, recessions, but also, you know, like very unique sort of components, right? Like it's like uh, classic supply side, like oil shock, you know, recession. Mm-hmm. You also have, you know, tech sector, you know, coming off, you know, things like, like crypto coming off. You've got geopolitical crises um, as well. And, and the inflation that you're having is generated by excessive monetary policy, not like, you know, insane growth. Right. Right. So it's a very unique sort of set of circumstances. And, you know, the, the magnitude of, of the figures um, have, have never been, been been bigger. Right. In terms of like, you yeah. know, what debt outstanding is in, in the market, what, you know, the valuations are at, et cetera. And so, you know, I think the Fed has to be incredibly careful with, with what they do. Um, and, and, you know, high level, I think what we can do is, you know, sort of participants in, in the market, investors, you know, whatever it may be, is just acknowledge the fact that they have a really hard job. It's going to it's impossible to, to nail it perfectly. And the odds of them having a, a soft landing are, are pretty slim. Um, there are going to be people that are going to get laid off. Unemployment will have to go, you know, materially higher. Um, and also that like we're, we're probably not going to get to the same levels of insane money printing um, ever again, or, yeah. or at least it's, it's, you know, you're probably going to need a much deeper recession for, yeah. for that to happen. I hope, I hope that's true. Um, on a long enough time horizon though, governments print all the money, uh, in my opinion. No, eventually. no, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, one, one of the best, you know, charts that I, I've been looking at yeah. right now, um, is uh, Bitcoin gold. Right. Um, I think you've seen a lot of deleveraging in, in crypto, um, you know, from the, the, levered hedge funds, you know, the aggressive lenders in the space. So broadly speaking, I think you're you're through the vast majority of deleveraging that's needed to happen in in in, in Bitcoin and in crypto in general. Um, and so I think in terms of comparing gold to, to Bitcoin right now, I think this is sort of the purest sort of point in time, because, you know, there, if, if you think about Bitcoin as digital gold, Right. Like it, and it's trading at, you know, one year lows or, you know, what, what, what I think it's the ratio is trading at, at 11. And, you know, I think my targets have it going to 10 at the lowest. Right. And so if you think that, you know, Bitcoin is actually um, a, a sort of scorecard on, on monetary credibility and monetary debasement, I think this is a very sort of interesting spot to think about Bitcoin as a, as a replacement to gold, given all the deleveraging that that's happened and, and how much, you know, Bitcoin has sold off on, on a relative basis. So to go back to last week, what is the most yes. like notable and good thing that, that I've seen in crypto is that this deleveraging has sort of left you with, with a sort of clean slate in, in Bitcoin and how you should think about it in the sense that, you know, the digital gold narrative you know, with the Fed and ECB eventually going to, you know, go back to zero and negative interest rate policy, you know, and we haven't even talked about, you know, Bank of Japan. But I mean, (laughs) there's so many things that, you know, to your point, central banks will always print money and governments will always print money. Like the monetary debasement narrative will always be there. And I think you're at attractive levels um, to think about, you know, Bitcoin gold. That's great. I really like that point. Um, Very well said. I I guess what you're saying is that this tightening and this period we're in now, it's it's probably transitory in the long history of central banks. Um, and um, and it, yeah, absolutely. And and look, I mean, Bitcoin's incredibly unchanging monetary policy. Um, again, stands in stark relief against what we're seeing from the global central banks. Yep. And one last thing uh, before I, 
uh, you kicked me off forcibly, <laughs> um, is that, uh, you know, w- w- one of the charts I'm, I'm most closely paying attention to as well is, is, is crude prices. Yeah, right? it was down. We're down a bit. We're down a lot, right? Yeah. I think, uh, you know, crude hit a high of like $123 a barrel, and today we're trading at 106 um, if you ask, you know, consumers, you know, where they're, they're feeling it the most, you know, they'll tell you rents and, and oil prices and oil prices, you know, f- flow into basically every good um, and service and into the economy. So you're starting to see some relief there. And it's a function of sort of output being high from, you know, OPEC and, and Russia, etc. Right. But more of a function of like demand slowing down now because, you know, the U.S. consumer is really feeling it. And, you know, global consumers are, are really feeling the impacts of you know, inflation. And so activity slowing down, if you look at, you know, sort of driving statistics year over year um, and sort of project out, you know, with consumer sentiment at, at, at its lows, like what travel activity is going to look like over the next couple of months, et cetera, you know, it doesn't paint that good of a picture for, for oil and in commodities and, and in markets in, in general, but, but more so in, in commodities, these markets move at the margin, right? And so if, if, there's less and less marginal buying, you're going to see an outsized impact um, in the market. And so if you do actually get some of that, um, you know, oil price relief, in addition to, you know, a currency that's rallied a lot in the, in the U.S. dollar, I do think you're probably um, much closer to, to getting to reasonable levels of inflation that, than most people think. And that means that, you know, the Fed can potentially take a less aggressive path uh, with respect to, to monetary policy. Bimnet, that was awesome. Thank you so much, as always, my friend. Um, and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you next week as we ride this roller coaster. All right, we've got Tim Grant here. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, uh, Tim is the head of Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Galaxy Digital. Um, been in crypto for quite a long time. Also, I'll tell our viewers, a truly talented guitar player. Um, <laughs> Tim, uh, welcome, man. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, following up on what Bim Net said, he's talking about central banks and, and Europe. I mean, you've got a pre- pretty interesting uh, perspective on Europe. You've lived in Europe, well, I guess your whole life. Well, actually, you, you live in the UK now, so you're not part of Europe anymore, technically. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a sore point, <laughs> by the way. But tell us, give us the, what's the, I don't know, set us off, set the stage here on what it looks like in Europe for crypto, um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll have a discussion. Yeah, well, look, firstly, it's uh, a deep pleasure to be on Galaxy Brains. I've been an avid listener myself, so it's uh, it's wonderful to be on here, and hopefully not for the last time. And look, I think it's also uh, worthy of note, you know, Galaxy, as most people know, is... Um, is is us based but we are building out in 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 style across the world so i'm delighted to be representing our europe middle east africa franchise um and there is a lot going on in europe yeah. and i think that the the big you know and i've i've spent i have been about seven years in this space and moved from the us to london last august after 19 years in the us um, and so really been absorbing the dynamic there um and it is, it, it's getting super interesting. Uh, and I want to kind of break up my comments into a few categories. Uh, I think one is regulation, because th- th- there's just been a very fascinating shift over the last six to nine months that, that I think is going to translate in the coming weeks and months into a little bit of momentum, despite the, the macro and the crypto dynamic at the moment. I think that's going to be cool. I want to talk about uh, the, the, the fact that the institutions are coming. Uh, there has been it's been a bit slow in Europe there, but but now that's that that's a, that's that's changing. And then I want to talk a little bit about security tokens because 
something like close to my heart given yeah. what I used to do, but it feels like it will have its day. There's a timing question, but, but, but that's what I want to finish on. So firstly, regulation. You know, if you look historically, uh, the, the, the Singapore dynamic was very early and the Swiss dynamic is very early to kind of get the right, the right pieces of the puzzle together to make everybody feel like, yeah, I can go and do business there in DeFi and crypto um, and, and with the institutions getting involved. So Switzerland really got it right early on with the, 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 the DeFi protocols that were just welcomed and looked after in, in cantons like Zug. That's, that has worked out so well for Switzerland because they were able to coordinate the, the cantons, the, 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 the national policymakers, the central bank. And the, can, the cantons are like provinces or states, right? Yeah, like exactly. And, and they have a fairly significant degree of autonomy. Um, and so Zug was very quick to realize that if they were to open up their arms to the DeFi community and you know, the Ethereum Foundation is there and many others, um, that, that they might attract uh, logically, strategically, uh, an entirely new um, mindset of people and a new industry. And that happened, that has definitively happened. Switzerland still is um, one of the core centers in Zug in particular for, for crypto and DeFi activity. But it was also the commercial mindset there, the social acceptance of crypto, which was early. And the regulators just got it right. They, they really have shown the path for Europe, which obviously Switzerland not being in Europe, just like, just like the UK, for how you get it right by coordinating and actually uh, uh, paving the way for commerce in this new space. Um, so that, that, that they were really an island, literally and figuratively, um, until recently. And then Germany started to come in and actually the rule changes in the last year, 18 months, allowed for fund structures to invest up to 20% in crypto. And that was a big move early on. And actually, even though BaFin, the local regulator, is, is, is known to be quite rigorous, they're going to put you through the ringer if you're trying to do right. anything. But they're actually quite pro-crypto as a nation and as a regulator. And you've seen a fairly significant DeFi community pop up in Berlin as well as a result and, and institutions uh, really adopting there early. And so this notion of funds being able to put, you know, 20% crypto has been quite powerful. So that, that pushed the adoption cycle there. The UK and France were always kind of holdouts. Yeah. Um, France was just seen as like being, in, you know, no bueno, non merci, we're not going to be doing crypto here. <laughs> And then the shot that was heard around the world was Binance is now regulated in Paris. Uh, you know, CZ or CZ, as I should say now, because I've moved back to the UK, uh, <laughs> really bounced from Dubai to Paris and kind of pulled the same stunt, which is they, they were welcoming with open arms in the regulatory and the government community in both locations. And, and the word is that, that in both they were courted. They yeah. were literally courted. Now, it's, it's fascinating when you think about it because you've got Binance, which is without a doubt the biggest exchange in the world of all of them, TradFi or DeFi. Mm -hmm. And they have no domicile. <laughs> uh, but Paris makes the bold move, which I think I've, I predict in the future that will be seen as a very smart move. Uh, because there is a community in Paris already, but like since that shot went out around the world and Paris Blockchain Week, which was uh, only a couple of months ago, 
was heaving. It was really? definitively one of the, the sort of more high energy. It was massive. It was massive. It was actually at the, the old stock exchange, interestingly, and Binance was written all over it. I think the irony was lost on a few of us. Um, <laughs> but, but they've now leaned in and Binance is going to set up its European HQ there. They're going to have 400 people. Um, now, that that's just fomotastic. That's gonna all all the other all the other uh, uh, jurisdictions are just like oh, what happened there. You guys were I thought you guys were were not into this, yeah. but they really are. And these things matter. Now the last piece of the puzzle is the UK. You know, post Brexit, uh, which uh, is personally a bit of an issue. I'm half French, half British, so I kind of tore us apart a bit. But you know, political views aside. Um, they made a really, they threw out the baby with the bathwater at the Financial Conduct Authority uh, a couple of years ago. They were trying to ensure that leveraged crypto products didn't get into the hand of consumers. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think we can all get behind that kind of level right. of consumer protection. But the rule effectively outlawed uh, exchange traded products with crypto underlyings as well. So it's a big outlier when you look at Switzerland and Germany that have quite a lot of exchange traded products. It's more fragmented than other jurisdictions, but the aggregate mm -hmm. is decent. And, and yeah, you, you can get an ETP or an ETF on, on quite a, a reasonable array of crypto underlyings there. Um, the UK is nowhere. And, and, and I think there was a lot of talk, and, and we even went through this at Galaxy when I was taking the role to run the, the region. Where should we be? We, we had to second guess the UK as a jurisdiction because theoretically... London, which which became the, the FX center of the world, is uniquely placed for a global 24-5 or a global 24-7 market um, and has the talent pool, et cetera, et cetera, and has been pro-fintech for a long time. And they really kind of botched that one. Mm. And, and, and definitively, a lot of companies were diverting to Germany, to Amsterdam, to Lisbon and other locations. You think they're salty, the British, that Satoshi uh, mocked the... Her Majesty's Treasury in the Genesis block of the Bitcoin blockchain, right? <laughs> Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. I don't know, maybe not. But. Well, I tell you what, if they were, then Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, in on in one one day in April, just turned it all around in one fell swoop. What they do? One eighty came out and said publicly, it was all over the news, and we all heard it. We want crypt, well, UK to be a crypto hub globally brilliant it's exactly what we wanted to hear we were delighted to hear it uh, at galaxy but you're already seeing the positive like now everybody's realizing that that now the uk is open for business so we need to uh we need to see follow through on that we need to see change and that's what's happening now the fca yeah. getting the joke but look that that's a that's a run that's through a of the landscape yeah it, it's really opening up um and so, that's and that's bringing institutions in or or they're on their way and, and I, I think a lot of institutions were were on their way but reticent now they've seen this pattern over the last few weeks and months and it's relatively recent that they're accelerating which is great news so the the the, the institutions are definitively coming the banks Yep. the asset managers, the, the traditional hedge funds. So should we finish on the security token yeah. topic? Let, let's hear this because it's I've looked at this for a long time and I've been a long time skeptic. I do, I, I'm not, personally, I'm not nailing the coffin shut. I just am waiting for when it comes. I'd love to hear your take though. Well, so my, my last role before being at Galaxy was the CEO of Six Digital Exchange in Switzerland. And, and, our, and our goal there was to build a regulated exchange and CSD for digital security. So I've been in the thick of, of that. And I, I'm actually got, I went from very pro 
too highly skeptical as yep. well because I call it the cold start problem. This is a this is effectively a new market. You need you need new players who are willing to market make. You need new issuers. You need to build liquidity and you need venues and they don't exist. So, it it, it I am I'm skeptical on when, not if. Now, what I what I thought it was worth sort of mentioning to everybody uh, on the podcast today is, it actually looks if you look at APAC versus US versus EMEA, Europe is is kind of in the lead. SDX is live. So myself and my, 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 my predecessors, or my successor, I should say, you know, we got it over the line. They're mm -hmm. regulated. Mm -hmm. They're starting to do little issuances. Goldman Sachs, SockGen, and, uh, uh, and, and another bank I've forgotten, did an EIB issuance last year on Ethereum. Now, they're going to do more of this. Now, I'm not saying the floodgates open this year, but, but you're seeing a lot more institutional interest than other jurisdictions in private equity tokenization mm -hmm. now how we get the liquidity in the rails for that is an open question but it's worthy of note that that it, it, it's definitively more prevalent this thinking and also in the middle east you know we, we've talked to some of the big sovereign wealth funds who have a lot of private assets and they want to think about how do we how do we get these things on chain so that's an exciting um i think evolution it probably will be slow but i'm ready to call now that we're we're on the cusp Whereas kind of for the past two, three years, it's been like, yeah, well, we get it theoretically, but when is it going to be here? <laughs> yeah. I, we'll get there one day, uh, one step at a time. Wow. So so in your mind, it's inevitable and the time has been, it's been a long time coming, um, but that when it happens, um, it will happen in Europe first, you think? Europe will lead the way on this? I, I believe that to be true. And, and you know, before the, the SDX guy was at R3 with, with the CEO of the Lab and Research Center, and so that was 42 global banks all thinking about tokenization back yeah. then. And of course, it's taken years. I mean, we did this too at Fidelity. Like we looked at tokenization for a long time. I think in the US, the, on, the only real thing of note um, was T0, right? Overstocks affiliated. And they tried to do something, an issuance there once. It didn't really didn't do work. any. Yeah. And, you know, they had Templum but, were but trying to do stuff. Yeah. And, and there was, I joked when, when I did venture in this space, we tried to, we wanted to make a bet in this, you know, vertical of the space. And um, I think in 2018 and 19, my partner and I looked at more token issuance platforms than there were token issuances. Yeah. So we met like 30 or 40 companies that were working on this. Everybody spun something up. Yeah. That mm, hasn't really come to anything. I now. mean, I, I would like to see it like, I'm not going to tell the whole story of the paperwork crisis on Wall Street that resulted in the creation of the DTCC, but um, they were one of the first, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation that actually holds your, your stocks in the US when you own a stock. They actually hold the ownership, the certificate, essentially. Um, they were created specifically to centralize a peer-to-peer -peer process that had gone awry, that lacked the technology to coordinate peers. And I feel like maybe um, the blockchain can still be that one day. It, it's 100% that you, when you think what we can, we, the intermediaries that we can get rid of, and by the way, I'll say this out loud, the challenge with an SDX, and which is part of six group, which is one of the big local exchange groups is you're going to have to disrupt those groups. They, they, they can't exist in the same form in the future. Right. And, and private equity, I think, is the, is the sharp end of the spear. But ultimately, we've now gone and part of the reason I'm ready to call it is because it was all about private blockchains for a while. And look, uh, we yep. can all agree that that might have their place, but this has got to be public blockchains, assets open uh, and, and, the, and the registration of assets needs to be able to be done on chain. And that's what Switzerland and now recently Germany have also allowed. So 
we're starting to see the regulation catch up with the state of the art. Yeah. So I think that's one to look out for. Awesome. Tim Grant, thank you so much for joining us. What a great uh, perspective you've got. And uh, we'll have to come out and record one of these in London sometime. It's a date. <laughs> thank you, Tim. All right, let's talk about some of the sort of extreme behavior we're starting to see in DeFi markets. Um, one of them much more extreme, but uh, that we're going to talk about Soland, the this, this situation with this newly formed DAO voting to seize uh, the funds of a whale who was near liquidation on their on their lending platform, Soland. Uh, but just in context, we've seen, we talked last week a lot about the sort of contagion and leverage and how in different ways it's been spilling out across the ecosystem. We have started to see some of those effects in DeFi directly. Um, one of the things that's been interesting is with centralized lenders that were highly leveraged, a lot of that leverage was opaque to us, but it turned out that they were operating in DeFi pools and that uh, those positions uh, analysts were able to follow. Uh, but it, and for the most part, the big ones, the, the maker DAOs and Aves and compounds have functioned quite well, but sort of at the margins, we've been seeing some interesting stuff. I don't know, Saul, can you explain to us this, uh, Solend, uh, story? And, and then I, I don't know, I, I can see Christine getting yeah. triggered there on the video just about <laughs> it. So I'm sure she'll have some comments. Preemptive triggering. Love it. <laughs> um, so, and kind of just to start off, uh, the situation is not quite as dire as it was over the weekend. Right. So I will start with like the initial fact pattern and then we'll just, just dig into it. Uh, essentially what happened at Soland, which is basically the Ave on Solana, much smaller though, uh, is a whale deposited $160 million worth of Solana tokens as collateral to then borrow $108 million worth of stable coins. Now the whale did this back when the price of Solana and generally the market was higher. So it wasn't like he was particularly close to any sort of liquidation. But as we've seen with the market and the turbulence as prices went down, the position inched closer and closer to liquidation. And so from Solon's perspective, this was a big challenge in terms of risk management. Um, if this liquidation happened on chain, the liquidity pools and DEXs on Solana aren't quite deep enough to absorb that massive $160 million position. Uh, in addition, there's also risks with Solana going down because the bots are the ones that actually perform the liquidation and it seemed, they're yeah, all going to try to spam it, it. It seemed like the Solana team was trying to claim that that actually it was the potential disruption to Solana, the network that was driving them. But that seemed a little disingenuous to me. Um, it didn't tell the full story. That said, the penalty for liquidation on Solana, which is awarded to whoever liquidates, is 5%. So on that position, there is certainly a big economic incentive to be the bot that does it interesting and, and part of their new proposals lowering that lowering that percentage down to two yeah um but the real risks from their perspective which is what you're alluding to is that solen could acquire a bunch of bad debt that they can't actually liquidate right uh if the price of solana starts tanking and creating this cascading liquidation scenario so so their initial solution was they would try to reach out to this this uh, whale directly uh, he didn't respond and so what they ended up doing which is where the issue comes in where the controversy comes in is they cobbled together a DAO of sorts. I, I say of sorts because it's not really decentralized at all. They kind of just made it out of thin air and they created this proposal that would give Solent emergency powers to liquidate this whale's position on behalf of the whale. And the proposal passed with 97.5% in favor, but it turns out one single wallet accounted for 90% of the yes votes 
with about a $1 million, $1 million Solan token balance, which is worth in the six figures. So essentially 500K of US dollars is controlling a protocol that has oh $250 million of assets. And, and this is like a snapshot vote though, right? Ultimately it's a multi-sig, right? It's not like this enacts immediately upon the vote happening. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, which is why then, so that was proposal one, and then they, the community was extremely mad. So then they immediately issued another proposal, which is to invalidate the first proposal, which also passed with similar numbers in the same whale, also voted <laughs> yes. And so <laughs> we're netting out to basically nothing happening. And then the, it turns out this whale finally responded. The price of Solana kind of went up a bit. So right. there's not as much urgency. Right. The, um, the chance of liquidation had gone down significantly, like by the, even by the yeah. time even i think if i recall in the timeline of, of over the past weekend um like yeah. a, a, shortly after the first vote to seize the wealth occurred mm -hmm. um the price had already rebounded and so yeah it was sort of kind exactly. of moot but but yeah they did the the whale did respond and start paying down some of that debt right yeah and they moved some of the position off to a different protocol called mangle markets so now it's it's much <laughs> i guess safer uh it's still a bit of a sketchy position it's still pretty big and so they yeah. created yet another proposal where you can't borrow more than 50 million dollars worth of crypto on the platform and if you do they are allowed to immediately liquidate you in like one percent uh intervals yeah. and they're gonna lower they're starting at 120 million and working back every hour 500k until it hits the 50 million wow so that's so, the newest and and saw this dow um it was just yeah. created like for this purpose, wasn't it? This isn't like Solon didn't have a DAO the whole time, did it? <laughs> no. <laughs> so ahead. traditionally, the way DAOs are usually created is there's a big announcement, there's a mission, there's a medium blog post, and people hear about it. Uh, this one, I couldn't find any sort of formation documents. I couldn't find almost any documents at all. I just found the Realms uh, platform where you connect your wallet and vote, and they just it's just three all of a sudden there was nothing something there. you could vote on basically yeah it just added a snap of the finger now there's a proposal it and the very first sense. one was take this rich guy's money basically exactly <laughs> okay. exactly what if the whale hadn't stepped in Saul? do you think that the dow would have had the power then to just take control over that whale account yeah i mean it seems like they were ready to move forward with this third proposal regardless of whether or not the whale actually responded and this third proposal um it, it's much more of a gradual liquidation so it's not them just taking the, the wallet and putting it all over the counter um it would allow it to operate as intended where the bots would liquidate it but in very small one percent uh tranches versus the 20 percent, which would have been a, just a massive massive shock there's so much that's sketchy about this but one is that <laughs> they yeah. do have the power christine they have the power right now to do it someone is holding multi-sig uh, is part of a multi-sig that can take anybody's money in that in that protocol it appears right i mean yeah the, these dow votes are just signaling community support and there's no real um there's no mechanism to ensure that either a the multi-sig doesn't do whatever it wants at any time or b that it follows the the wishes of these votes right i mean how confident are we even that the whale was the actual owner of that whale account who eventually moved the funds. How do we know if this movement <laughs> of funds was really as genuine as we see? Do we know? It clearly did cause a lot of, um, of resistance from the community. So I'm, I'm quite skeptical and I'm quite shocked at how 
this was even, you know, a possibility for Solen to, to behave in this way, like for this protocol to be able to behave in this way. Yeah, I don't look, I mean, this might be harsh, but I, I am no longer referring to it as a protocol. Um, this is some kind of multi-sig with an application front end, basically, and nothing about this looks automated or decentralized to me. That is correct. I mean, it's masquerading as a decentralized protocol because that boosts your engagement, your valuation, all that good stuff. Yeah. But it really isn't. It's like, um, it's the always has been astronaut meme, right? Decentralization matters, like always has been, right? Like it's, this is like, <laughs> hopefully this type of bear market X, the bull market excess gets cleared out. Like, and we, people focus on fundamentals. That's actually a good point. I wanted to kind of bring up, there's a few takeaways here. I mean, one is that the DAO design is so crucial and you can't just try to figure it out on the fly. Clearly, um, just the fact that the, you're voting with a governance token and there's no quadratic voting mechanism. There's no weighting based on your actual engagement with the protocol. You could One could theoretically just buy a bunch of these tokens with half a million dollars and essentially control the entire protocol. Uh, that seems to me like there is no thought put into the design uh, in terms of a governance standpoint. And, and this protocol was clearly engineered during a bull market. No one thought about what would happen if the price of the collateral goes down. Oh I mean, why is this so shocking? I don't know. Unreal. But I really think that that's why it's times like these that decentralization really matters. And as much as these protocols do masquerade as, um, you know, adhering to the ethos of Web3, one of the benefits, like you said, Alex, of this bear market is that we can really see which protocols are truly decentralized and the way that they respond to market volatility and which aren't. Yeah, I want to shout out Chris Black, too. I don't know if you guys follow him, but um, he's done a lot of work on DeFi transparency around keys and, and admin um, admin rights that people have over DeFi apps. And gosh, his focus on it looks like is is very apropos um he's been critical of many many platforms over the over the years now and um you know as of many of us but um he's done a lot of great work so check check his stuff out on this absolutely i mean it's just finance it's puzzling it is puzzling because there's also there's a lot of money printing there's a lot of rehypothecation yeah. there's a lot of unclear <laughs> credit risk there's a lot of like oligarchs in charge of stuff and it's just you know people all right the whole point was to do this stuff in a decentralized way, not just like turn finance into an app. Um, I have a Fidelity app on my phone. It works great. You know what I mean? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, once we got away from Bitcoin with, you know, deflationary inherently, and now, okay, everything else, it's inflationary. Just make it out of thin air. And uh, it, it just is so odd to me that somehow this is all falling under the umbrella of crypto when some of them are completely antithetical to the whole point of crypto. Absolutely. Been okay with that. Christine, you've been following a couple other things. Not, I, I wouldn't say as egregious as Solend. Um, I'm really happy we talked about this, though, because it just, it was, I, mean, I think, though, I mean, they basically faced a ludicrous backlash on Twitter when they did that vote. Uh, and everybody was like, what is this junk um, happening now? But, but there's other stuff that's been happening that's interesting, not nearly as egregious, but still sort of, you know, in response to this market volatility. Um, what have you been following, Christine? Yeah. So this week we saw a fresh new round of basically other DeFi protocols starting to switch gears to protect themselves from um, very harsh swings in, in the market. 
Um, one that I want to highlight is Bancor. Bancor is one of the earliest decentralized exchanges that was founded in 2016. They were the first ever to use the automated market maker to match bids to asks. And um, they're known in crypto lore for um, doing this ICO back in 2017, which was the largest amount raised through an ICO at the time at $153 million. So in many ways, Bancor, I think, is one of the founding fathers of DeFi. Mm -hmm. um, and on Sunday, they released this blog post saying, due to hostile market conditions, Bancor's impermanent loss protection is temporarily paused. Um, withdrawals performed during this unstable period will not be eligible for um, impermanent loss protection. This is a temporary measure that should give the Bancor protocol some room to breathe and recover. The blog post goes on to say that you know trading still remains active and that they're working as to get the impermanent loss protection reactivated as soon as possible. Um, and I just want to highlight how important the IL protection really was to, to Bancor. Um, so impermanent loss, like simply put, is the difference between holding tokens in your automated market maker, so Bancor, versus holding them in your wallet. Um, so anytime the price of tokens that have been locked into an AMM diverge in any direction. Um, when it diverges a lot, there's a higher um, amount of impermanent loss for the liquidity provider. Um, and this happens because automated market makers are disconnected from like centralized off-chain markets. If token prices change on say Coinbase or, or Binance, mm -hmm. um, the automated market maker doesn't automatically adjust those prices. It requires an arbor somebody to perform arbitrage and buy the underpriced asset um, or sell it if it's overpriced. Um, and then you know that's how the automated market maker and the pool continues rebalances to match. right to the yeah to the price. Right the and price. and <laughs> right and this technology. Um, it means that users who do provide liquidity to automated market makers can see the tokens that they've input um, basically lose value compared to if they just had held onto their tokens on their own. And that risk is called impermanent loss. It was one of the things that um, had prevented perhaps mainstream or institutional users from feeling comfortable in providing mm -hmm. liquidity to, to AMMs. Um, and Bancor, uh, I can't remember the exact year that they did this, but basically it was in version two of their of their protocol. They introduced impermanent loss protection, fully protecting liquidity providers from impermanent loss. What does that mean? Impermanent loss protection is basically enabled through Bancor's BNT token. People, the liquidity providers are paid back um, for their impermanent loss by Bancor's uh, governance token BNT, which over the past couple of weeks due to market volatility has has dropped significantly um, in value. Wait, wait, wait. So they're paid with money printing, with Bancor inflation, basically. With the tokens yeah. that, BNT, <laughs> that Bancor has created, it's true. Yeah. It's another one of those things that uh, the money printing just never ends right this is this is where the bitcoiners have been right a long time i think by the way you give you give a group the ability to print money and they will print and print and print and that is what we see from central banks 
It's what we see from a lot of interventions in monetary policy for cryptos that were ostensibly going to be unchanging. And it, and, and these types of schemes, right, a, a legitimate problem in AMMs that, that those who trade there need to be aware of, right, and permanent loss. And, you know, I, I think in some ways noble to try to figure out a way to, you know, mitigate that for your users. But, of course, when you open that money printing spigot, that's the only solution. And if the if the money's losing value, then it becomes less and less effective. Right. And we're starting to see some of the best features in DeFi, like impermanent loss protection, having to be rolled back of DeFi protocols like Bancor, having to roll back these features in times of market volatility and market turmoil. Um, and another really good example of yet another DeFi protocol that is starting to roll back some of its, its key features. Um, this one is a newer protocol, Maple Finance. They're a lending protocol. Um, they announced this week that they're noticing insufficient cash in some of their lending pools and that now lenders have to wait for borrower repayments um, for loans to mature, uh, given that uh, there's there's significant amount of illiquidity. Um, Maple Finance, one of the things that um, resulted in this decision, decision being made by Maple Finance um, is that Maple Finance... Uh, communicated that Babel Finance, um, which is a, a Hong Kong-based crypto lender, um, had taken out a loan of $10 million um, in one of their liquidity pools. And as we've known over the past couple of weeks, Babel Finance is another cryptocurrency lending lending company that, that had trouble, that announced that they were having trouble repaying some of their debt um, and that they... Um, would have to halt withdrawals and redemptions of crypto assets locked in their protocol. So this is another example of just contagion um, spreading throughout different DeFi protocols and one domino falling, impacting the other dominoes. And it just being like this cascading flow of just uh, of, of withdrawals being halted, redemptions being halted. Um, so it, it, I think it's quite clear that the impacts from um, market volatility are nowhere near being finished. Um, we're continuing to see quite a lot of, of um, features being rolled back again by DeFi protocols. Um, and it does raise the question of, you know, is the best of DeFi, were they really built to last? Is the best features of yeah. what we know about the decentralized finance ecosystem something that is sustainable? Decentralization, that was the goal, right? That should be the goal. Otherwise, um, you know, I can take a good loan out from, uh, you know, my Fidelity account or something. <laughs> like, let's get... <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It just looks like a bit of a clown show out there. It's kind of like it's the same story is being repeated with every, all these protocols um, having their challenges in these markets. But... You know, I, th I think at the same time, it's it's bullish for people that are building now that probably have the ability to see all this scar tissue and hopefully are, you know, kind of accounting for these different extraneous factors. How far we've strayed from Satoshi. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I do wonder what's next for the DeFi ecosystem, because I think what happens, what has happened up until now, and what I think will continue to happen will have a really big impact on how DeFi protocols um, create policies around treasury management moving forward, especially as it relates to yeah. the tokens that they've issued, like uh, BNT in the case of Bancor, um, and, and just the volatility that these prices don't always go up, like sometimes they crash, and that's something 
that your protocol needs to take into account, which I know sounds obvious, but perhaps not in a bear, in a bullish, in bullish market conditions. Um, so I don't, I don't want to say that this is the complete death of De- of DeFi. Um, I think that perhaps the the new features and the features that have been rolled back so far uh, will help mature the space in a positive direction, kind of like what we saw um, in the aftermath of, say, Black Thursday back in 2020. I think it's a good point. I do think, um, you know, if if the great financial crisis of the late 2000s helped spawn Bitcoin and Satoshi um, said that the chancellor was on the brink of second bailout for banks as sort of that marker. We are at that point right now in DeFi, right? FTX on the brink of second bailout for lender is a reasonable, uh, you know, analogy here. And let's hope that with that as the marker, if people who believe in decentralized finance um, look at that scar tissue, like you said, Saul, and they move forward and they build things with the with these lessons in mind. Because if they don't, then I think it's pretty clear that history is doomed to repeat itself over and over again. Oh, man. Um, let's do a couple quick takes before the end of the show. Um, I've got some here. Tether is launching a British pound-backed uh, uh, stablecoin, and I think they also launched a Euro-backed Euro stablecoin. Anybody like is that interesting? I mean, I don't know. I'm just regurgitating <laughs> a tweet that went viral, but like I think it was along the lines of no one cares about the euro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the dollar, I think dollar stables too are like 95% of all stable coins, so um it's, you know, I, I guess I don't it's know. It's a good headline. Yo, so uh Saul, I don't know if you've been uh following any of the NFT NYC stuff, but oh, yeah. I guess Spike Lee Yeah, well, I want to talk about that protest that looks like it was staged but was quite funny. Uh there's a protest against nfts uh that was went pretty viral on twitter but it, it appeared to be staged probably by an nft it definitely is uh, yeah yeah an nft uh collective or co- collection or whatever but um they had some funny headlines they were kind of um like mocking sort of satirizing the way the westboro baptist church the the bigots that protest at like funerals against you know the lgbtq community mm-hmm. Um, but similar signs, obviously, any NFT focused, right? God hates NFTs. Um, I, one of them said, make fiat great again. It's actually right near our office in, in New York. Um, it was funny. Um, but but also I saw Spike Lee, which is I thought this was kind of interesting. He says he sees potential for NFTs to democratize film funding. Um, I don't know exactly what he has in mind. Do you guys see potential for that? Definitely. I mean, and I won't go too long. The quick take here is that just look at all the sequels and nfts will solve this curse of everything being a safe sequel and the lack of original content interesting yeah and then i guess i don't know the last one the stock to flow model let's talk about people follow plan b on twitter the guy's got like a million followers um one of the dumbest models that was ever created for bitcoin valuation in my view precisely because it doesn't take demand into account and for an asset whose supply is essentially inelastic, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Anyway, it's totally broken, um, and Vitalik mocked it uh, as well. Um, but everyone has been sort of stomping on this grave. Uh, but don't worry, he just did a, a refit a new model. Um, I don't know about you guys. I'm following the rainbow chart model uh, created by the brilliant Eric Wall. Um, dead serious model, this thing. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it is 
It is dead serious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so if you see people with rainbows in their Twitter handles, that's what they're referring to. The rainbow model has not failed yet. Um, <laughs> oh my so God. check that out. Can't wait to look at this. <laughs> also, check out Vitalik Buterin's new post of how to live like a nomad and travel light. Oh, the backpack. Yeah, that was a bottom signal, I thought. Oh, my God. It is, but it's still fun. <laughs> is it a good post? It's great. It it's is. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. It's bullish Uniqlo. <laughs> oh, is it? He creates a mathematical model for like packing in terms of volume. It's great. Oh, my gosh. It's really well thought I need, out. I need help with that. I only just recently learned you can roll your clothes <laughs> oh to, sa and, to save space and they don't uh, wrinkle. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but Vitalik, a co-founder of Ethereum, uh, telling us how to live out of a backpack does seem pretty bearish to me. <laughs> Everyone get all ready. Right, that's all we have. Yeah, that's all we have this week. Uh, thank you, Christine and Saul from Galaxy Digital Research, uh, Tim Grant from Galaxy in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, and as always, our friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Digital Trading. Everyone have a great weekend, um, and uh, you know, follow Galaxy Brains. This, these are getting good. I think we need to keep doing this podcast, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> we're about all to right. we get renewed. <laughs> Another <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Single. We're going to ask the producers if they're going to renew us for season two. Um, oh, I'm getting the thumbs up. Um, all right, everyone. Again, thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. This was Galaxy Brains. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, Check us out on Twitter at GLXY Research and read our reports at galaxydigital.io slash research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.